0: so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can, and often does, happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening.
1: Hello there. Welcome back to Fantastic Fiction at KGB. Um, My host, my co-host Matt Kressel, and I are happy to have you here. We're glad people came. And uh, have a happy holiday season to everybody. Do it one more time and I'll wave. No, like <laughs> oh, you want me to do it? Yeah. If you right, want. Wait, you ready? Wave. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's a great one. Okay, I got
0: it. Right. Thank you. This friend likes to be talking to
1: right. Oh, yeah, right. Ellen, it's I just t- got a few good shots of you. Okay, Christmas. good. Our next guest is Maria Devana Headley. She's a New York Times best-selling author of wow. seven books, most recently The Mere Wife, a contemporary retelling of Beowulf for the MCD MCD imprint at Farrar Strauss, and Giroux, which will be followed in 2019 by a new translation of Beowulf for the same publisher. Okay, what language is that? Old English. Okay, (laughs) Okay, cool, that's great. She's also the author of the young adult novels Magonia and Airy, with Neil Gaiman, she edited Unnatural Creatures, and with Cat Howard, she wrote The End of the Sentence End of the Sentence, sorry. Her short fiction has been nominated for the Nebula Award, the World Fantasy Award, and Shirley Jackson Awards, and included in many years bests, including Best American Fantasy and Science Fiction, in which this year she has two stories. Um, you can find her on Twitter at Marie at Maria Devana or on her website, <coughs> MariaDeVanaHedley.com. Please welcome Maria Devana (laughs) Headley.
2: Okay, so I'm going to read from The Mere Wife. This is the Beowulf adaptation. It's Beowulf in Suburbia, is the one line. That's how I sold it. That's what it is, but it's kind of bigger and weirder than that. Um, It is. Beowulf from the women's point of view. So it's Grendel's mother, Rothgar's wife, a bunch of suburban matriarchs who are Beowulf soldiers. And uh, Beowulf is a suburban police officer called Ben Wolf. And I think that's all you need to know. I'm reading from Ish the beginning. Okay. Listen, it's time for church. Bells are ringing from below, this fat, homesick sound that makes me think about everything I've ever seen at this time of year. Good and bad, a skinny little plastic tree in a parking lot when I was 13, a red nose in the desert when I was 23, a rose on a motel sign when I was 24, and I'm confused for a moment before I remember that it must be Christmas. It snowed during the night, and everything is blanketed. The world feels safer against logic, and I feel summoned like I might get up and run down the mountain now after all I've been and done. I haven't been to church since I was 17, and the church I went to then is gone underneath Herod Hall like everything else. Instead, I check traps, the ones in the darkest part of the trees where no one can see me from below. Nothing in them. I need a bird or a rabbit. Gren's still fast asleep, and so I watch Herod through the scope on my weapon. I'm not aiming at them, I'm just looking. I haven't killed a human since Gren was born. Before that I killed 10, that was my count. Maybe someone else's is different. Seven years ago I woke up in a hospital that wasn't really a hospital. My guns were gone, but when I got out of there running I climbed into my friend Bobby's parents' barn in Nebraska. Hollow hoarding under a plank, couple hundred bucks, some naked pictures of women I didn't know, some MREs. Bobby's M4 carbine and Beretta M9. Men was ready for any just in case. Bless you Bobby, rest in peace. They're up high on a ledge originally out of reach of Gren except now he's tall enough to touch anything he wants. I've tried to teach him about danger but he also knows how to load and fire. I needed him to know. There are emergency weapons in a situation like this. I don't use either of them to shoot but I keep them clean. I'm trying to figure out what Gren sees in the people below us and it's obvious. They have so many things. Everything down there is brightly colored and beautiful, bountiful. Up here, rocks, sticks, rabbits. The wall-sized TV is on. There are balloon animals parading down the middle of an avenue somewhere. Is there a Christmas parade now? I don't see a child and I don't see a husband. Just the wife, dressed, making coffee. The parade she's watching is a parade of grinning giants. I saw a parade once that was all puppets with bloody mouths. That seemed more right to me. The way sticks move them, the way they cast long shadows on the sand and beneath the shadows, little creatures scrambled, trying to get out of the sun. She brings a bird out of the refrigerator, a goose plucked by someone else. I watch her at the counter with a knife, opening it up, putting her hands into it, blood in the sink. She's stuffing this bird and I'm up here with my son, feeding him what tonight? The cat is turning on the spit and no fat is dripping. There's a squirrel too. Not safe in its den, but roasting in ours. There's the boy in snow gear. He looks very small, but that's because I'm used to grin. I think about how a mother made him. I've been a house like that for more than just my son. I've been a warm room for voices that shout and scream and tell me they're trying to surrender. I saw a baby blow up in its mother's arms when I was over there. A soldier touched its face, and the baby cooed, and the soldier gave it a kiss. Everybody died mother, child, soldier. All the soldiers guys died but one, and I watched that guy running crazy out from a black-and-white place in the dirt. I saw a lot of movies played in a tent. That thing, the bomb, the baby, the last guy running, it might have been in a movie. One time I threw a beer bottle at a sheet stretched between two buildings and cried during a preview for something stupid. I figured I'd never live to see. That's the last time I remember watching anything on a screen. I think about what Gren would know if his world weren't the size of our cave. He could see what the world really looks like, what the world really is like. The fossil trees, the ones on this mountain, those trees were never hung with ropes, but that's only because humans didn't exist when those trees were alive. Down in the tunnels off the main station, there are things from a century back, people using it before us, people hid here. There's a trunk with a jacket with a high collar, something made of dark fabric, blood-stained a dress made of calico covered in mud at the hem, a paisley shawl, a christening gown embroidered with flowers for some baby gone now a hundred years. If you leave things long enough, they stop belonging to anyone but the place they're in. When I was little, I had a doll my mother found in the caves on this mountain, small bones carved and strung together. My son has a rock with a fossil inside it, and that came from someone else to me and from me to him discarded things can get used again, sometimes for love. When I get back to our cave, I find Gren's toys on the floor. Stick dolls, each one tied together with string, each one broken into twig bits. Men he's made. He's killed them, and I don't know why. I don't know what game he was playing, who he was angry at. Mommy, he says. He's never said that before. He has a doll in his hand, I watch him crush it and then throw it off the edge of the cave lip into the water we can't see. Something makes a sound down there. I'm looking at his spine, the sleek bones beneath his skin. Made by my body, these bones, and sometimes I'm broken by that too. The idea that this person came from me. I feel toxic mostly, but I brought him into this world and here he is. We look down into the dark together and something large splashes a heaving up out of water slopping onto stone Gren, I say all is well and will be well no, he looks up at me and his eyes flash in the dark I'm not right, Gren says I don't look right what do you look like, I ask him you look like yourself he shakes his head, he crushes another stick man in his fist and it cuts into his palm drops of blood fall from Gren's hand and down into the dark water the creature keens stop that, I say They're hungry, Gren says, and flings another drop of blood down. He had 30 men here made out of sticks. Now there are only 28. I played with the boy from down there, my son says, not looking at me. You said they were monsters. (laughs) My heart starts pounding, and I calm it as quickly as I can. I can't scare him. I have to get him to tell me. Only one person, I say my voice even, calm. Just him? Did you go down the mountain? I played in the snow with him, he says. He's not a monster. Did anyone else see you? There's something else in his hand. I've been seeing it glittering, not thinking about it, and finally I know what it is. A Christmas bow, the kind that sticks onto a package. I'd forgotten something like that even existed. Gren brings out a box wrapped in colorful paper. To Dylan, from Santa. He gave me a present, Gren says, and his mood has changed. Now he's happy, he looks up at me, can I keep it? He thinks his loneliness is gone forever, but this is the thing that happens right before you learn that even though you love someone, they might not love you back. Is this how it is in the world for every parent? You follow your son, you wait outside your house when he doesn't come home, hoping there's a God out there paying attention to you, or you wait for your daughter. You look in the windows of cars and houses knowing you could lose your children in a second if you let down your guard at all. This is nothing new. The world is the world. My world is worse than that one, but not by much. I think of the little boy in his bare pajamas, the way he's running around his Christmas tree, his parents, the things he's going to tell them about my son. I think about that little boy and I feel my heart fill with grief, with end of the world because Now I know who I have to kill. So, says Willa's mother, Diane, marching in with her matriarchal unit on Christmas morning. There are five women here, all wives and widows of Harrod Hall, dressed in holiday casual, pale cashmere and pearls. The mothers travel as a pack. They station themselves on the kitchen stools. We got up early for this. Coffee, Willa asks, the silver tray already in her hands. This is a council of war, even though it's Christmas Day. War is always one cup, black, no sugar, and sure enough, the mothers take their portion. No one eats breakfast. If Willa offered, it would be a national scandal. The mothers count calories like kills. Beneath their sweater sleeves are arms made muscular by boxing. Three have become karate black belts out of boredom, and the rest train on the Pilates reformer daily willa ties her own wrap sweater tighter around her middle beneath there, her eyes there's a light treatment of concealer which her mother wipes off with a disdainful fingertip reapplying something dead sea from her own purse there are marks on the window willa tells them and on the piano and on the mirror above it too the mothers march through the house to examine the marks they seem unimpressed she'd expected more a crew of fixers running from a van like something on television "'I always thought it might be a mistake "'to leave the back of the house unfenced,' Willa says. "'Who knows what's on the mountain? "'There was that bear attack last year.' "'And absolutely not,' Tina interrupts. "'My husband designed Heret for safety. "'It's a mountain, Willa, not a safari park.' "'What are the marks from, then?' Willa asks, "'feeling slightly desperate. "'Claudia doesn't have a dog,' says Diane, considering. "'Who's Claudia?' Willa asks. "'The woman who cleans,' says Roger's mother, Tina, a "'faint edge of disapproval in her voice "'which has taken on an accent.' Claudia, she's been cleaning your house for four years. She's from Mexico. Implications. Willa feels like a candy thermometer, blood rising. I know her name, Willa says. Roger's taken Dylan to build a snowman, specifically arranged by Willa so that the visit of the mothers could be a secret from him. Thank God she doesn't need Roger seeing this. Dylan's version of Christmas Day gleaned from television includes Dawn. Willa plied him with treats, and now Roger will have reaped the rewards of sugar, Dill sobbing in the snow, irrational and bitey with his demands. The marks are too deep to be from a cat or raccoon, Willa says. They're too deep to be from anything I can think of. Maybe you've forgotten, says Tina. A delivery, says Diane. A guest with a dog, says Tina, and gives Willa a look that feels like an ice pick to the soul. What guest? What implication is this? Tina might as well call her an infidel. Is that what it's called? Tina's never liked Willa. Tina puts a questioning hand on one of the two fragile balloon wine glasses on the counter, left over from last night. Both have a bloody rhyme of red in the bottom. Tina smiles at Willa, whose pulse visits her eyeballs, though she has no reason to be guilty. She's done nothing wrong. Tina's own son drank that wine. Willa knows, though, this is her own fault. She's not supposed to rely on the mother. She spent the night considering the way dying attacked by a mystery animal would absolve her of every carpool. Every cocktail hour, every day, as a daughter and mother and wife, would dying be worth it? No. The mothers look around judgmentally, and at least two of them have fingers out, dragging for dust. Willa has a sudden fear that her lacy panties are on the kitchen floor. She glances down, but there's only a broken gingerbread man. She tries to scoop it up before they notice, but now Willa's on her knees, and all the mothers are crating down at her like ostriches. I think it was a bear, Willa hears herself say. I really think it was a bear. Oh, for heaven's sake, says Diane, and gives Willa her own ice-pick look, except that this one resurrects a dead marriage and reminds Willa who the hero here really is. Never mind, says Willa, it was probably something that happened at Dilly's last play date. Maybe I just didn't notice. The mothers nod. That narrative is their preferred, Willa failing slightly, regularly. Roger is perfect, Willa is not. This is usual. Christmas morning isn't for package opening because the mothers prefer Christmas evening. The light is better, then. Photos live Forever. They leave a stack of presents. Too many, if you ask Willa. I'll wear my armor and bring my sword tonight, says Tina, and laughs. It seems someone's imagined a monster. My daughter's not prone to imagining, says Diane. Of course she's not, Tina says. She only needs to be her own lovely self, isn't that right? Why would she need to imagine anything? Willa tries to get between Tina and the fridge, but she's not quick enough. Tina opens the door, dodging and bobbing as though the crisper contains a criminal. I'd never do a goose, Tina says, and shudders. The fat, Diane says, and nods, realigned in sisterhood. I love how she doesn't care about calories, Tina says, and then both of them look at Willa's waist. When Willa was seven months pregnant with Dylan, she, saw she and her mother went shopping, and a woman smiled at Willa. The woman was large in a way that enticed, gloriously enormous and unapologetic. Willa smiled back and turned to see her mother shaking a finger. That's what happens when you let yourself go, Willa's mother said, and glanced at the flesh on Willa's upper arm, the creamy way it poured from her sleeve. There's a warning in this for us all, said Diane, all but crossing herself. Now she lives on protein bars. They all do. When the mothers are finally gone, Willa puts her head inside the freezer. Of course, it wasn't a bear. It was Dylan and a paring knife. She regrets calling in the troops. She ordered the goose from a retailer that gave the goose's entire family tree. It's a heritage bird. She ordered heirloom onions and grains for stuffing. There was a 10-page photo spread in her mind. Her Christmas dinner is photographed for the masses. Tagged, envied. Now the goose looks yellowish and nervous. She has it all under control. She'll drain the fat. She won't drink it. She won't boil it and pour it over anyone. She'd never. She looks down at the cookie kicked beneath the counter, Dylan running through the kitchen, sneaking sugar or Roger last night, pushing her against the counter. She walked into the pantry in search of the rest of the three dozen gingerbread men baked yesterday afternoon. She'll decorate them. Usually she loves Christmas, but each gingerbread man is missing its head, neatly bitten off. Gren, she thinks in spite of herself and shivers. All around her, the windows open onto snow and the sky is falling. The bells are ringing out for Christmas Day, and in the foyer she hears Dill and Roger stamping their feet the gusting smell of weather. She walks out into the foyer, but no one's there. Snow pants sprawl like a bisected corpse in the hallway. A red scarf dangles from the banister, a balaclava like a sucked, dry head, skull and eyes missing, only skin left. A snowball hits her in the back. She turns and another snowball hits her hard in the face. She blinks and tries to keep smiling coffee she says clenching her teeth in turn her vagina her fists the men are laughing not men she corrects no boys dylan is doubled over in hilarity and roger is laughing too willa thinks about the chef's knives in the kitchen her brain glancing over them the way they stand in the block like soldiers did you eat the heads off the cookies she asks them do you think that's funny the white lights on the christmas tree twinkle in staccato seizures Someone had too much wine last night, Roger says, and then laughs, it's just snow, Wills, don't be so grumpy, it's Christmas. She flexes her muscles again and then blows air out her nostrils like she's a horse. She's never had a horse. Some girls are horse girls, Will is a walker. Suddenly she wants a stallion and she wants to ride into battle on it, swinging her own sword. Still standing beside her, his hands out for the mittens to be removed. For a moment, she sees claws poking through the fingertips and a tail whipping up behind her son, but then, That's gone. I show Daddy where I played with Gren. She looks over Dill's head at Roger who shrugs. Snow angels, he says. He went out to run around. There were some tracks, but it wasn't anything. I'll get Mark to come out with me and have a look. There are bears here, she reminds him. One got into the trash and made a mess of turkey legs and gullets last Thanksgiving. Bear tracks don't look like that, he says. Also, it's winter. This is just kids. Don't worry, enjoy Christmas and your mother. We saw her car leaving and my mother's car too. And who else, Margaret and Alice, Patricia, the entire club actually, which seems a little much if you ask me, but you didn't. Willa studies Roger who is losing his hair as he stands before her. She drifts back to the kitchen and stares up at the misty mountain. The slope is smooth as vanilla ice cream. The bells ring again. From the living room, there's the sound of the piano, not chopsticks, but something else. A tune she's never heard before. It makes her stomach tilt, her ears prickle, and bile rise in the back of her throat. It's not beautiful, it's strange. Willa listens for a moment, then yanks a chef's knife from the block, but when she gets to the room, only Dylan's there, sitting on the bench. She puts the knife behind her back. What was that? Gren taught me a song, Dill says, and smiles giddily his tiny, pale self, milk teeth. Willa is reminded of an x-ray photo she saw once, of a little boy's skull the way the adult teeth were lodged high up near the nasal cavity and deep in the chin hidden above and below the pointed pliable baby teeth, double rows like those in a shark's mouth. She goes back to the kitchen boiling. Why did she say she'd cook this goose? There's supposed to be some sort of archaic feast in packages and everyone singing around the tree in seven hours and 37 minutes. She's walking barefoot across the soft pile of the rugs when her he- heel catches on something. She drops to her knees and crawls, her face an inch from the floor. There are snags all along the passageway. She blinks, feeling dizzy. She unlatches something sharp from the carpet fibers. It's the sheathing of a claw, hooked as a tiger's pearlescent white. How am I for time? Keep going? Do you guys want a dog chapter?
0: Yes.
2: Okay, let me hunt it down. That's what I'm going to do. That's the whole reason. I could also just sing some Bob Dylan. (laughs) (laughs) I could get up in some Tangled Up in Blue all of a sudden in here. This is the problem of the paperback. I don't know where any of my chapters are anymore. Okay, here we are. Hark! Yes, dogs on duty, criminals, teeth, robberies, noses, drugs, bombs, riding in cars with heads out the window, official vests. We're off with our agitated officer, 10 dogs without leashes. The whole company met and released inclined by right of nose. Our officer blows a horn, and we sniff his secrets. He's taken a few things to keep himself awake, bulk, illegal, from India. Pure protein and adrenaline, chewable fear. He's been scanning a map of the mountain, an old one, and we smell that, too. Railroad, crumbling paper, oily fingerprints. Hounds in a swarming pack, moving as one sleek body, leaping a wall made of stone, an interesting smell there. 400 years ago, someone died on this rock. 100 years ago, someone hung from that tree. 13 seconds ago, there was a squirrel. Run, run, yes! Big mountain cat spray, drop flat to the ground. Creep, no, not above, look up, careful. Branches, oh no, oh no, silent, slinking, murdering. Cat, oh. Oh, oh, okay, never mind, long gone. House cat, tiny, fluff, and flea powder. Scratch over that, dig a moment in disgust. Show them your work, boys, show them. Dogs can tell how many times a person's heart beats, how many breaths they've taken, whether they're sick, whether they're dying. Dogs can find the secrets their people don't know, tip them over, spill them onto the ground, roll in them. Dogs can feel this officer and his cowardice making him miserable. He doesn't want to find the things we're looking to find. The world is full of secrets no one cares about. No one but dogs. Sniff it. He's scared of this woman on the mountain, but he has a long yellow hair stuck to his jacket. Fur of a different beast. We sniff it. Officer has been roaming. We huff the target sweater again. Boy, chocolate, poison, divine, lick, yanked back. Dirt, bloodied knee, soap. Sometimes we are in a cage for days. Sometimes we're at a cafe for days, waiting, biding time, eating clandestine crumbs with tongue out, casually tasting toddlers. We are rarely used to our full sniffing capacity. Rub his nose in it, there you go. Get him the scent, good. We already got the scent. We had the scent before you knew there was a scent. From three towns away, we had the scent. We have been hunting this boy for two weeks. We travel on perfume lines, drink them out of the air like you listen to the radio, put our heads out the window of the speeding car and smell someone touching someone else. Five lanes over. Blow job. String cheese, tequila, and a new wedding ring. Respect. Ears back, grin on. Yep. Rub his nose in it again. Yeah, he's lost the scent. There's a good boy. We never lose the scent. Scents do not disappear the way you think they do. We tug them like ropes. Hounds running uphill, a wall of the correct smell. That sweater again, we know it by now, don't we? And every day it smells more interesting. Now it's coffee, donut, plastic sack, car keys, sexual lubricant, vodka, yellow-haired woman who smells like, she smells like the boy we're tracking. Where is that boy? All over the mountain. Oh yes, it's the smell of the sweater, it's the smell of the lost boy making his way up the slope. Highest leap over fallen trees, over icy creeks, snow to the chest, cold paws, trip, trap, trap, snow ruins the smells. Who needs to shit? Stop, paw the snow, look busy. Oh, the horn again, and it breaks the snow off branches. One of us is military, retired, brought back on a flight, misery forever. Mostly he only points for tobacco. But he stands over a crack in the snow, pawing a gap in the story of Earth, a wriggle. It's a scent he knows. Sand, desert, someone made of war. Bomb and bright and night and birds screeching overhead. What's in here, shall we? Yes, we shall. A skinny spiral of smoke coming from a fire, a chimney under the mountain. We think about the underground because our officer thinks about the underground. Caves, railways, trains, tracks. Where are they? A rail tie there, a barricade there, an old crack in the old earth. Point, boys. All at once, every hound here, paw down, nose down, show him where the scent went. Our officer kneels. A tiny crack and through it we smell the scent of the missing, of the mother, and of the other. All three down there, out of reach, but that is not our business. We thrust our noses into the dangling palms of police and bark our victory. Our quest is complete. Treats.
1: Thank you you very much. That was fabulous.
2: Thank you.
1: And uh, that's it for tonight. So hope you hope you'll all come back next month uh, for Victor Laval and who's the other person? Julie C. Day. Yeah, Julie C. Day. And hang out if you want to drink some more. Happy
2: holidays. Bye.
0: <laughs> you have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. I'm Rajan Khanna. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, and always... Thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.